This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth. The sign of great leadership is when you've done such a good job recruiting people, training and developing those people, and coaching those people that they can take your spot. And then when you leave, the thing runs seamlessly. From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Hi everyone, Justin Schreiber from people.ai. Welcome to the Legends of Sales and Marketing. Today, I'm joined by John McMahon. John ran worldwide sales at companies such as PTC, Ariba, and BMC. He currently sits on the boards of companies such as MongoDB, Sprinkler, and Snowflake. When it comes to B2B selling, John is an institution. Today, just about every B2B sales company on the planet uses some form of his medic sales methodology. John came of age in an era when conventional selling approaches were starting to fail because they weren't addressing the nuances of the new tech landscape. Things like complex products, protracted evaluation periods, and large decision-making committees. John was one of the first people to design a system that took these realities into account, and he could combine that with a methodology and also an extensive set of activity-based metrics to deliver consistent, great sales outcomes time and time again. Today, John's going to give us a master class in how to use Medic. But first, he'll talk about how he almost missed his calling in sales and the chance encounter in college that ultimately set him up to become one of the most influential sales leaders of our generation. John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Justin, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. John, before we get into the, the good stuff about sales, I wanted to talk a little bit about a passion that you have for cycling. Tell me a little bit about where that came from and maybe some of the more extreme things you've done on a bicycle. Justin, the way I got into cycling is I was... Uh, I was playing a lot of racquetball and then um, I got injured, separated my shoulder. And then when I was recovering, a buddy of mine asked, said to me that he uh, he raced bicycles. And I thought it was the weirdest thing that I ever heard. And I said, where do you do something like that? He said, well, every Tuesday and Thursday night we go to an industrial park and we race around, you know, the, the city streets. And I and he said, you know, you ought to get a bike and come out sometime. And I thought, you know, I could just like kill these poor guys on a bicycle like how what kind of sport is that and then i went out there and on the second lap these guys were going so fast i couldn't hang on anymore and i pulled over to the side and i threw up that i i was it was it was a horrible experience so then i started to think wow this is really a challenge like i got to try to get into this thing and the same guy that asked me to get into it a guy named mark hoffenberg he was a category two cyclists. And that's just underneath the pros and the national team. So he became my coach and I quickly went through the ranks of the different categories in cycling up to a category two. So that's how I got into it. Since then, I've done things like, you know, ridden my bike across the United States, ridden across South Africa. Now I just do it a number of times a week to stay in shape. Now for the uninitiated, we look at 
at cycling as an individual sport. You get on your bike, you ride your bike. It is really a team sport, though, and there's a lot of psychology involved in it. Yeah. When you watch races like the Tour de France, is really one leader and there's nine guys on a team and those eight other guys are basically what they call domestiques. It means like the maid, the maids, and they have to basically block the wind for the the leader of the race. So when like Lance Armstrong raced, they might take him over two or three Alps and then on the final Alp, they'd go as fast as they could to get him to the bottom of that Alp, you know, without him having to have done much work because he was always being shielded by the other eight guys. And then on that final Alp, it's just mano a mano, him against the other leaders of the other teams. So if you've ever seen it, you know, when the race starts, it's like a hundred some something guys. And by the last Alp, there's probably only like five or six guys fighting for the lead. And that that's basically what's happening. It's a team sport because of the wind. You can't see the wind. But someone that's behind someone else that's hitting the wind is probably doing three quarters, sometimes maybe half the work is the person that's up front hitting the wind. I see a lot of parallels between that and the sales profession. People think of that as an individual sport. It is a team sport as well. Oh, it's definitely a team sport. You know, like when I rode across the United States, the way to think about it, it took me 30 days. I did 3,452 miles. So I averaged 115 a day. If you sat on your couch for 30 days, you'd probably have some good days and you'd have some bad days. And the same is going to be for cycling. So if you're doing 115 a day, you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. So you need other people that are in your group where you're having a bad day and they're going to help shield you from the wind. And the next day you might be feeling great and they're feeling terrible. So you got to, you got to take the lead. So it's a, it's really a, it's a, it's definitely a team sport. You're not going to basically do that all by yourself at the same speed across, you know, 3000 miles. It's not going to happen. So you, you need, you need other teammates and it's the same in sales. You got to learn from other people. There's going to, you're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days and you need people to help you out. Well, let's get into John McMahon as a kid. You grew up in Washington Heights in New York city, the upper part of Manhattan. Yeah. And then I grew up in New Jersey mm-hmm. after that. What was, tell me a little bit about that scene and what you learned growing up there. Well, I think you learn street smarts pretty quickly as a kid. You probably see some things or you definitely see some things that some people probably never see in their life and probably shouldn't see in their life or even know about. You learn pretty quickly on the streets because things happen, come at you at a pretty quick rate. And then I think my dad was smart enough to get us out of there and over to New Jersey where it's a lot safer than back then in the Washington Heights area. I've heard you talk a lot about your dad as well. What did you learn from your dad and what kind of an influence did he have on you as a kid? I mean, my dad never went to even junior high school. Basically his mom died when like six months after he was born. And then his dad was a alcoholic and left him and his brother on the streets to basically fend for themselves by the time they were seven years old. So you learn a lot about persistence. You learn you're taught like what a dollar is. You're taught that if you want to get somewhere, you're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to work for it. I think those are the biggest things I learned from my dad. What kind of options did you have growing up and, and what were the kids around you doing in terms of how they spent their time, where they were heading in life? I think for the most part, you don't really think that you ever have it bad. Maybe my dad did, but I never really thought that I had it bad. I was always fed and had a roof over my head. The guys I hung around with, I thought that it was a pretty normal life. 
played a lot of sports. We were out in the street running and hiding. And, you know, I would leave early in the morning in the summers and not come home until dinner time. So I think that's that's pretty normal childhood. Later on, I think, you know, some of my friends got into drugs and alcohol and I lost, you know, my best friend. So that had a big impact on me. And then right at, right after that, I lost my dad. So those two hit me pretty hard and kind of told me, look, if you're going to do something in this life, you know, you got one shot. Don't screw it up. So you ended up then going to college. Tell me a little bit about that college experience. What did you study and how did that lead to a life in sales? Yeah, so that's interesting. So I went to school. My dad became an electrician for Otis Elevator and no one else had ever gone to college. So I said, you know, what should I do? I want to go to college. And I worked my way through college by packing trucks at United Parcel Service, five o'clock to 10 o'clock at night. And um, so I went to school for electrical engineering. And the last year I became the president of the IEEE. It's like the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers. It's a industry club that electrical and electronic engineers join. And I held like an industry night where I had a panel full of uh, people that would talk to the students. And then when the panel was done, I had these round tables where everybody could have dinner and talk to the different people from the panel. When I got done running the logistics, I looked over and all the tables were full except for the table with the sales guy who was sitting all by himself. <laughs> So I went over to talk to the sales guy and I never really thought that, you know, that I'd be a salesperson, but I could talk to this guy and he didn't seem like a nerd, like a lot of those other fellow students that I had. And I didn't really have a passion for electrical engineering. And it, I knew I was never really going to be the best at electrical engineering. So I was kind of searching for something else. I went home and told my dad and he said, look, I don't know a lot, but. I do know that sales guys can make a lot of money in this world. And I thought to myself, that's it, I'm going into sales. So then I went to work for HP. At that time, they were selling electrical and electronic test instruments to electrical engineers. So that's what I did. At that time, there were even some of the boxes I was selling were $100,000. So it was a good education on and a good first step into selling. I've heard you talk before about getting your PhD in selling. A little bit of a different spin, though, on what the PhD is yeah. in selling. Tell me a little bit about that. That's persistence, heart, and desire. Like, I was never really the greatest presenter. I don't think I have my, of myself as the smartest guy, but what I was is persistent. So I would just keep coming after you if I really thought that you were somebody that could buy. So I would show up in the lobby and call people, tell them I'm down in the lobby. Sometimes people would come down and say, you know, what do you want? And then I, I, I got them. I could talk to them. Other times they wouldn't come down. If I wanted to get to a, a VP, I might stand in a parking lot at six o'clock in the morning, wait for them to pull up. And I know that I'm at least going to get 30 seconds from the parking lot to the front door. Sometimes they'd invite you in and say, come and have a cup of coffee with me because their secretary's not around. Other times they may dismiss you right at the front door. But you know, I got my chance. It was better than trying to get through their assistance. It's a little, little bit of a PhD, persistence, heart, and desire. That persistence clearly paid off. Tell me a little bit also about questions. I've heard you talk a little bit about questions, the importance of questions. You've got a personal relationship, though, with the power of questions. Where did all that come from? Really, again, because I didn't think of myself as the greatest presenter. So I thought that I, you know, I need to ask a lot of questions to figure out really what the customer wants. And I'm only going to present what they want. I'm not just going to get up there and start talking about a lot of features and functions. 
seemed useless to me. It seemed like, you know, if they, if they don't care, why am I going to tell them about something they don't care about? So I'm going to ask a lot of questions before I present. I used to think of it as like a, the old analog camera, right? Where you, every time you took a shot, you had to pay for the film and it got pretty expensive. So what you really wanted to do was focus the camera, focus the camera, focus the camera until you really thought you had the shot you wanted. Then you took the shot because you didn't want to pay for the film. So it's the same in sales. You got to keep asking questions and asking questions and asking questions, you know, until you think you're, you're ready to present. Now there's a little bit of an art there. You can't just ask, you know, walk into a customer and ask, hammer them with a, a million questions. So there's a little bit of give and take too. You got to give them a little something to get, to get some more questions in. So this stay at HP begins. What is a great run? You spend time at PTC where you really, I think, hone your philosophy from a sales perspective, Blade Logic, BMC. You now sit on several boards and consult with some of the great sales organizations. As I've talked to you, I've been inspired by the amount of clarity that you have at each stage in the, the selling process and, and the overall framework that you use. And I'd love maybe just to spend a few minutes breaking that down. Great sales organization starts with great people. What do you think about as you're hiring a sales team? I think recruiting is almost everything, Justin. So if you don't re re uh, recruit the right people, it doesn't really matter what you do after that. So one of my sayings is you could recruit B and C people, do everything else perfect, and chances are you're not, you're not going to win. But if you could recruit A's and do everything else average, and those A players are going to find a way to help you win. So recruiting becomes, becomes everything. And you have to have a recruiting profile and your recruiting profile has to fall out of your sales process. So, so many times I see people have a recruiting profile or a job description for a sales rep and it's a lot of blah, 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 blah stuff. It doesn't really say what skills they need to have, what knowledge they should have, what, what are the characteristics and what's the minimum experience level that they should have. And if you really think about it, in each stage of a sales process, there's certain skills that a rep needs and certain knowledge that they have to have in order to complete stage of the sales process. Without it, they're going to fail, right? So your job description or your job profile for hiring a sales rep has to follow your sales process. And all those skills and knowledge need to fall straight into the, into the job description. And then for the skills or knowledge that they don't have, now you're taking a risk and you have to ask yourself, like, how am I going to cover that risk? You know, do I have a training program if they lack knowledge? Am I giving them to a manager that has that skill set that can help develop the skill set for this person that lacks that skill? If you have too many skills and too many, too much knowledge gaps, you're taking a big risk. And that's why I think a lot of companies fall into, especially in technology, for the most part, there's 25 to 30 percent attrition in most tech companies. I think they miss. They don't really look hard at who they're recruiting. They kind of think, well, he's a salesperson, so all salespeople are the same. And that's, that's not true. They might have knowledge, but they may not have the skills. So, you know, if you think about, let's say, Tom Brady, who's a great quarterback for the New England, or used to be the New England Patriots, now the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But Tom is very, very knowledgeable about the game of football. But that doesn't mean that he can play all positions. 
So he's a great quarterback, but if you move him to any other position on the field, on the first play, you're going to be thinking, what is he doing in that position, right? Because he doesn't have the skill set. So I think that that's overlooked a lot by, by people when they're recruiting. They think all salespeople are the same. And, and it's wrong. And there's different skills, knowledge, and there's different characteristics that people have at different stages of a company. So somebody that's used to being only in Oracle or only in Salesforce.com and you stick them in a raw startup where they have to fend for themselves, there's nobody else around, they have to get creative, they, they have to scrounge for things, put things together. You know, a lot of those people fail because they've never been in that environment before. They don't have those, those types of characteristics. You've seen the A players, you've seen the B players and the C players. Can you talk a little bit about how the A players engage the C-suite and what they're doing differently versus a B or a C player? The best salespeople or the A players are talking about business problems. So they're identifying the biggest pains that, the, that a company has and they're speaking in the same terminology and at the same level of this of the C level. So if you're a sales rep and you're throwing out features and functions, you're probably pretty low in the organization because you're not finding the pain. You're not quantifying the pain. You're not implicating the pain. You're not putting a cost justification and getting them to understand why they have to buy, why they have to buy from you and why they have to buy now. So what are the negative implications of not buying now? Who suffers? What suffers? What measure suffers? So if you can find that revenue suffers, profitability suffers, some sort of you know regulation suffers, so they're or some sort of risk suffers, and you speak only in those terms when you get to the C level, you're probably going to stay there. If you're starting to throw out features and functions and talk in technology terms, they have people for that. You know they can push you down to you're going to get relegated to who you sound like. That's a great perspective, and it, it definitely resonates. I started off my career in consulting, of all places. I remember, though, watching the way the partners operated. They embodied a lot of what you're describing. They were engaging with the CEO. They understood what was top of mind for the CEO. They knew how to speak the language of the CEO. And in many respects, that CEO viewed them as a peer and was much more willing to have an open dialogue to share things, but also to receive information. Ultimately, that became a new engagement. And in many respects, that partner was just a great salesperson. Right, right, exactly. But too many salespeople, especially tech salespeople, want to just show up and throw up. They want to spew out a whole bunch of features and functions and hope that the customer can figure out what their value is. Now, most customers you talk to initially, they don't know the degree of their pain. They may understand they have a pain, but they've never really taken the time to assess or quantify that pain. And they don't know really anything about your product. So if you're just showing up and throwing up and throwing features and functions out, sometimes you run into a smart customer that does a little back of the head calculation and says, hmm, well, how much is that? And they're thinking they could save a million dollars and you say $30,000. They're like, done. You know, let me have that. But the really good salespeople take the time. They slow down the front end of the sales process. They slow down the discovery of pain. They slow down in quantifying the pain. They slow down in understanding what the to be process is. So they understand the current as is process, but do they understand the to be process? And can they put that together and then build a cost justification from, from that data? And then understand what the negative 
implications are of not buying. So, so many people actually do a pretty good job of discovering the pain. And sometimes they'll even quantify the pain, but they don't create any urgency. They don't help the customer understand why it's a priority to buy, you know, so, because they don't understand the negative implications of not buying. The gain for customers has to be much greater than the pain, right? If the gain is not much greater than the pain, you can't expect to get a you know, sizable order. I've heard you mention a few times sales process playbooks. Why is that so important? And what does your playbook look like? Well, pretty similar to what we just talked about. My playbook would be to, if you're doing enterprise sales or really any level of sales, you have to understand why the customer has to buy. And the way you answer that question is you have to understand the pain that they have. Then the second part is why do they have to buy from me? Are they going to buy what I'm selling? And the only way that they're going to buy what you're selling is if you're aligning your differentiators and the capabilities of your product to their pain so that you know that you have a solution and hopefully your product's differentiated enough and matches some of their major pains that now you can create a criteria for the customer to test, you know, all products against that criteria. And then you also, like we just said, now, why do they have to buy now? You have to figure out what's the negative implications of not buying. And what you really are trying to figure out there is who's most affected by the pain and what measure is most affected. So as an example, when I first sold CAD, you would think that you'd go call on the CAD director, the director of CAD in a big organization. He'd be the person to buy, right? You couldn't be more wrong. That person didn't have any pain. The engineers already had CAD systems, right? So if you went to the CAD director and said, hey, Justin, here's this, you know, whiz-bang features and functions that I have, his answer would be, you know, John, I just did a corporate visit with my current vendor, and they're going to have exactly what you have in the next six months. John, you know, it's just a leapfrog game. It's features and functions. They're all going to be the same in the end. But the engineers might be suffering. So you sat back and said, well, who's really suffering here? Who suffers in time to market? Who suffers in engineering productivity? Who suffers in engineering costs? Wow, that's the VP of engineering. I got to find a way to speak his language and get in his door and talk in, those ter in that terminology and not whiz-bang features and functions. That's how you really change the game because he owned the pain. He understood the negative consequences of a product coming to market late or cost overruns or low engineering productivity. He had the pain. He just didn't know how to solve it. And then from there, if you do that, those three whys, why do they have to buy? Why do they have to buy from me? Why do they have to buy now? And you've done your homework on all the things we talked about, like building the cost justification, the before process, the after process. You're going to find a champion. And if you find a champion, those people typically have the ear of the economic buyer. And the reason they have the ear of the economic buyer is they're thinking in terms of solving big customer business problems not small tech problems, but big business problems. And they want to attach themselves to that solution. Why? Maybe they want to get recognized. Maybe they want to get promoted. You know, maybe they want to gain control over something. Maybe they want to make their whole department more productive. There's some sort of personal win in it for them. And they have influence inside the organization. And a lot of times 
people think, well, I looked at the org chart and uh, here's the people that have, you know, influence to the economic buyer. And that's not true. They might be on the org chart and they have authority. That's the reporting structure, but they may not have influence on this type of decision. So what you're looking for is not the Nina's and not the Annie's. So you're not looking for no influence, no authority people. And you're not looking for authority and no influence people. You're looking for influence and authority people or influence and no authority people. And typically influence and authority people, you'll find them on the org chart. They're probably people that are going to get promoted. They're put on you know, strategic initiatives. And then people that have influence but no authority, they're typically like the domain experts. There's the, uh, they have some sort of expertise that the organization needs. And if the C-level people come out of their office and they're making a strategic decision on something, they'll go confer with those people. So those champions are people that can get you access to the economic buyer and vouch for you. And it's not just selling the product. It's also going to be that the economic buyer needs somebody that they can hold responsible for value realization. Okay, I just spent $5 million on this product. So the sales guy did a really good job, but how am I going to make sure that I'm going to realize 10 or $20 million from this product? It's got to be that I have a champion internally that I can hold accountable for the success of this, of this, of this product. Does that make sense? Yep. That's great. You've alluded to this philosophy or this approach that you take, and it has allowed you to land huge deals, seven figure, eight figure, in some cases, nine figure deals. You send two people in and two people come out with very different sizes of deals, but they're dealing with the same company and the same pain. What is your approach to landing massive deals versus going in and just coming back out with a small deal? Well, I think part of the thing that I've already answered, but it's attaching yourself to big deals. So I remember one time I we made a call on a CIO, I won't say who it was, and we asked him like, hey, tell us. How there's thousands and thousands of vendors you deal with. Tell us how you know who you're going to deal with. And the guy told a great story. He said, look, John, everybody that works with me and everybody externally thinks of me as a firefighter. You know, I think that I look over hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres of land. And they think that I'm a firefighter, that every time there's a fire, I got to run and put the fire out. But that's not my job. That's not what I do because every company has thousands of pain points, but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily ones that they have to solve and change. So what I really am is I'm a forest ranger. I, look, I protect the entire forest and the integrity of the entire forest. So I'm looking for the biggest fires to put out. So if you really want to ever sell at the sea level, you got to find a way to get above the noise, find a way to attach yourself to the biggest business problems. Those are the ones that are going to come out or garner the greatest value for the company and then garner the biggest order size. So we've talked a lot about what the account executives are doing. Leadership, though, is also critical from a sales perspective. In your mind, what are the hallmarks of a great sales leader? Uh, one, they're selfless. So they don't think about themselves. They're thinking about how they develop people. Because the great, if you think about it, a lot of times you hear people say, well, you know, I was, I'm a great leader and I left that company and then it fell apart. 
And then you think to yourself, at least I do, I think then you're a shitty leader, right? Because the sign of great leadership is when you've done such a good job recruiting people, training and developing those people and coaching those people that they could take your spot. And then when you leave, the thing runs seamlessly. You know, like right now, I probably have 150, maybe 200 people that are, you know, CROs that used to work for me. And I think that's a great sign of leadership, that you're capable of recruiting the right people, coaching and developing those people to take your spot. And in fact, in a, in a growing organization, organizations that are growing 100% a year, it's really paramount to their success. They can't keep going outside to get new leaders. So you shouldn't really promote anybody until they've been able to prove to you that they've been able to recruit and develop someone to take their spot. One of the challenges of working with great talent is that great talent is always in demand and people are always trying to poach them. How do great leaders hang on to great talent? Why does great talent stick around with certain people and with other people they take off immediately? Because they're learning. If, they're, if I'm learning and I'm being coached, I'm being developed, my manager is challenging me in the right way, and, there, and I see that I'm, my knowledge is gaining, my skill set is increasing, I'm making money, other people around me are making money, we're getting promoted, the company's growing, and um, where, where am I going to find that someplace else? I might be able to find more money, but I'm not going to be able to find somebody that's going to grow my skill set and increase my knowledge so that I can go get more money down, down the line. So, you know, there's that old line that, People don't leave companies, they leave managers. And you're not going to leave a manager that has a vested interest in helping to coach and develop you and take you to a spot that you've never been before. Or you didn't even think you could get to. And I don't mean that just by, you know, your title. I mean, your capabilities, your ability. You're not going to leave that person. You've talked a little bit about the the tenets of medic i'd love to get your perspective on the backstory behind medic where did that whole thing come from it came from ptc so when we first started selling a ptc the product didn't work and th these are the days when you ship the cd and back then we were doing new major releases of the software every six months and the product didn't work until Rev 7. So it was three and a half years in before it worked. So in those first three and a half years, the sales process was pretty good, pretty easy. It was demo, close. Actually, we would give a little whiteboard presentation with our five features and functions. And then we would show those in a highly choreographed demonstration. And then we'd shut that thing down and then we'd We'd say, okay, what do you think? And customer would say, well, I, you know, I want I want a rental, I want a loaner, I want a benchmark, I want to do a validation event. And to all of those requests, we'd say, no, 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 no. So now the tension in the room would get really high. In fact, you could probably cut the air with a knife. And that was it. You'd have to close. Then by Rev7, the product started to work, but we really knew it worked, but it only really worked in certain use cases for certain products. So the only really way to win would to be to control what the customer was going to test, control the decision criteria. So that's where the D, one of the Ds came from. If I don't control the decision criteria and I have these other competitors with 
wide range of features, functions, capabilities. I'm just not going to win. So I got to pick my fights and I got to make sure I control the decision criteria. And I got to control the decision process. Now, the only way to control the decision criteria and decision process is to influence somebody and find a champion like we talked about before. I got to find a champion because when I'm gone, that champion has to help sell internally and control, not allow people to make changes to the criteria in the process. And if we want to, before we're going to test and do like a week-long benchmark or POC, we have to get to the economic buyer to ensure that if we test to this criteria, you will buy for X amount of dollars. Yes, okay, then, then we do that. Then what happened is we, the product continued to get more capable and now we want to sell much bigger deals. Well, to sell bigger deals, you're gonna to have to cost justify. So the, how am I gonna do that? I have to continue do what we said before, identify the pain. Why do they have to buy, set the criteria? Why do they have to buy from me? Why do they have to buy now is the negative implications of that, understand who that, what measures are affected, and now put all that stuff in a cost justification. So the quantification of the before process, the quantification of the after process, all of that rolls into a cost justification. And, and that's the M, the metrics. I need metrics around the before and after process. Since then, it basically also, you know, added like a C for competition too, because you'd be surprised if you walk in through deals with salespeople, how many times they think they're the only ones in the account. So who is the competition? What is their strategy to win? Who are they speaking to? Who is their champion? Is their champion stronger than your champion? Oh, you got some problems right now, right? And then the other thing is the venture process, approval process. If you want to forecast accurately, you have to understand that the paper goes from Justin to Sally to Sue to Steve to John. Then it goes to procurement for a week before it goes out the door. And you have to have all those steps with the time frame for each one of those people. If there's four weeks left in the quarter and that process is seven weeks, you can't forecast that deal, right? So the way to think about MedPick is... A lot of people say that it's a sales process. I mean, and it's not a sales process. It's a qualification methodology. So the way that I think about it is think of Google Maps. And I decide that today I'm going to drive from Boston to New York. Google Maps is going to show me the ideal way and route to take to get there in the shortest period of time. And that's really what a sales process is. It says in these different stages, if you do these things, and you really complete them, and you go stage two, stage three, stage four, stage five, you're going to get an order, and you're going to get it in the shortest period of time. Now, when I'm driving from Boston to New York, I may think that I'm 30 miles outside of Hartford, Connecticut. But so then I check with my GPS, and my GPS says, no, you're 10 miles outside of Hartford, Connecticut. And that's really what MedPick is. It's the ability for me to understand where you really, and even a sales rep to understand where they are really in the deal. So if you were to stand up in front of me, I'd start asking you questions from MedPick to try to understand. You might be saying, hey, John, I'm going to get this deal. It's in stage four. We're going to get it this quarter. Oh, really? Okay. Let's start asking some questions. So now I start asking MedPick qualification questions and I find out, hey, Justin, you're really in stage three. 
here's the, some information you're lacking and you haven't met with this person. So there's no chance you're getting it this quarter. The other benefit from it is that you can help coach. I could coach you because I now know for all the deals that you're in, it seems like you're always getting stopped in the third stage of the sales process, for instance. Why is that? Is it because Justin lacks a skill? Or is it because Justin lacks some knowledge? Or does he lack a little bit of both? What does he lack? Okay, now I can help coach him and develop him. Get him over that hurdle. So MedPick is a really, really powerful, let's say, GPS and analysis tool to not only help qualify deals with your salespeople, but analyze the capabilities of your salesperson and also help you forecast accurately. John, my favorite part about that story was the casual reference at the beginning. The product didn't work for three and a half years, so we needed to figure something else out. Hot and pan sales guys, Justin. <laughs> Vacuum cleaner sales guys. Don't let us get our foot in the door. <laughs> I love it. There were some people that respected that and other customers that didn't respect that. But what were you going to do? You knew that if you left it with the customer as a loaner, as a rental, as a benchmark, you were going to lose anyway. So you're wasting your time. So you had to pick your fights. You know, you had no other choice. You talked about the legacy that you've left just in terms of the sales, the CROs that you've mentored. Clearly, that's an important part of who you are. Can you talk a little bit more about the responsibility that sales leaders have to mentor the next generation of sales leaders? You know, look, if they check their comp plan, their comp plan says that when your team sells X, you're going to make Y. So I used to always say, like, I want all my people to make more money than me. Why? Because then I knew I maxed out my plan. So how are you going to do that? You have to, again, make sure that you're recruiting the right people and you have to put all your effort into helping to coach and develop those people. And if you do, you're going to leave a little bit of a legacy, but more importantly, you're going to, you're also going to help yourself too. So, but it all starts with not being selfish. If you want to get what you want, you got to help another, enough other people get what they want. And sometimes it means some tough conversations. So sometimes you might see people that for the last three or four quarters, they've kind of remained at the same level. And you know that they have a lot more potential than that, but they're not doing anything about it. So you might have a hot seat conversation. You might have to pull them in a room. And this is not a five minute conversation. This is something that has to take, could take an hour, could take five minutes. Depends upon how they receive the feedback. But if you explain to them like, hey, Justin, you know, I think pretty highly of you. And for the last four quarters, you've kind of remained at this level. But I think you're better than that. I think you should be at this level now. Not only do I think that other people I spoke to think that you should be at this level. And I know you can get there. And here's what I think you need to do to get there. And I'm going to help you get there. And if you can help somebody in a conversation like that and they eventually get there, so you saw something in them that they didn't see in themselves and you had a vested interest in pushing them and helping them get there. Once they get there, they're not going to they're not going to leave you. I had a boss when I was contemplating moving into sales management, and this is how he sold it to me. He said, Justin, you might make a little less money than you used to. You're going to deal with a lot more problems than you used to. You're not going to be in the spotlight like you used to be, but you're going to get an amazing opportunity to develop other people and a great salespeople. How does that sound? He said it worked every time. The people that had to think twice, they weren't cut out for management. 
they were great salespeople and he wanted them to continue to be salespeople. On the other hand, the people that without batting an eye said, that sounds great, sign me up. He knew that those were the people he wanted to work right. with. A lot of times some sales reps would call me up and they'd say, hey, I want to be a manager. I, the first question I ask is, do you have any kids? They say, yeah, I got two kids. I ask, why do you, why do you want five more? What do you mean? Well, when you were single, it was all about you. You got up when you wanted to get up. You went to bed when you wanted to go to bed. You ate what you wanted to eat. You did activities on the weekend or throughout the day, whenever you wanted to do them and whatever you wanted to do. Then you got married and you had a couple kids. And now what? Was it about you anymore? No, it wasn't about me anymore. And that's right. It's all about when the kids get up, when they go to bed, what their activities are, what they want to eat. So good leaders have to have that mindset where they have to take their ego unscrew it, leave it on the dresser at home and go to work being selfless and understand that the way in which they will be successful is when they make their, each individual on their team successful. And if you don't have that mindset, to your point, you're never going to make it anyway. If you think it's all about you, which happens a lot when sales reps first get promoted. A lot of them think it's all about them. They think, okay, the reason I got promoted is I'm a great sales rep and now I got to basically sell all these deals for these five guys over here, right? And that's not how it works. You're never going to do that. It's not sustainable. So you have to back up and understand the only way I'm going to be successful is if these people are successful. That's a tough mindset for some people. I don't know why, but it is to your point. John, it's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed what you've shared. More importantly, though, thank you for the legacy that you've left to future generations, just the philosophy around how to sell and how to create value for all of the customers that we call on on a daily basis. You're welcome, Justin. Glad I could help. Nice talking to you.